All right, we can begin in Genesis 14, and uh, we will be there in a minute. Genesis 14. Excuse me. Last time we started, what we're doing is reviewing uh, the names of God. And I think it's a terrific thing that God doesn't just give us one name for himself, uh, but he revealed many over the roughly 1,500 years that it took to write the scriptures. He, kept, he keeps revealing himself in written form. Of course, uh, he reveals his, himself through his word. There's no new revelation being written. And of course, we were talking about most of us have many names. We have at least three. I have four, uh, just names actually given at birth. Um, we have nicknames and things like that by which we identify each other. The Lord gives us many names, if you want to call us that, or titles. And uh, we discussed a number of those. It's helpful to stop and remember those. What does God call you? Now think about it. A sinful mortal taking upon themselves to say that God chose me before the foundation of the world. Or to say that I'm accepted in the beloved and that I have access into his presence and I can come boldly. Uh, anybody who knows themselves at all in light of God's holiness would never dare grasp something like that for themselves. But yet God reveals those things to us. You are elect and precious and peculiar, which again doesn't mean weird. A peculiar refers more to God's view of us a precious treasure in his sight. And uh, we talked about how the Lord will give uh, to believers a new name. In fact, one of the churches in Revelation, and again, it's what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Those are more application than just the exact one of those seven churches he's speaking to. Imagine the Lord giving you a stone with a new name written in it that nobody knows except you and him. And it's a, it's a tremendous thing that uh, we are not one of the masses in heaven that you have access to God as much as you want. I mean, can you even fathom being up there with millions, billions, I don't know how many believers will be there, angels, everything else, and yet God, in His infinite nature, will be able to spend uninterrupted time with you whenever you desire. It's an amazing thing. <clears throat> and of course, the names of God are all inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, they tell us things about Him they tell us things about his attributes, his actions, things he has done. Some of his names are just their remembrancers. They help us remember. And what a, what a wonderful thing memory is. They tell us who he is. And some of these names he gave to himself directly uh, in the Scriptures. Some of them were inspired via uh, men's experience with him, which is what most of the compound names are. Uh, most of the names El something or Jehovah something, and we will get into those. Now, last time we were talking about the three primary singular names given to God in the Old Testament. They were Elohim, uh, Yahweh, or Adonai. Let's just review those quickly. Elohim is a general term for God. It's very similar to our word God in the English language. If you say the word God, is that talking about the true God or a fake one? It could be any uh, because it's a general word referring to deity. And it's a name by which the Hebrews would have known him clear up until the burning bush. 
uh, when the name Lord, L-O-R-D, or Yahweh, or Jehovah. And again, we don't even know how to pronounce that word technically. We're given the four consonants, Y-H-W-H. The Hebrews didn't speak that name. They didn't, even like to, they didn't even want to write that name, so they abbreviated it. And later on, we added vowels from the word Adonai uh, to make the, the phrase Yahweh, or Yehovah, Jehovah. And so when you see the word in your Bible, capital L-O-R-D, uh, which, by the way, is the number one noun in all of Scripture, uh, 6,500 times, it appears. Uh, most of those, the vast majority, of course, in the Old Testament. Um, but uh, that's his name, his covenant-keeping name. And it was given at the burning bush uh, chronologically. And then we have the name Adonai, which means Lord. It can, conveys the idea of master. And that was actually used 76 times in Scripture before it ever was applied to God. And uh, that, that actually is important if you notice where it's first mentioned, because the idea in the Hebrew mind was very developed. It was used as uh, master, one who owns, okay, one who calls the shots. And so by the time uh, the Lord himself was referred to as Adonai, it would have jumped out, especially the Hebrew, that this conveys the idea of him being master. I am his servant. I am I'm created to do his bidding. I'm going to turn fans on. realize I am used to those being on. <clears throat> and from those three names, actually the first two, and again, we talked about two of the major mentions with Joshua mentioning Adonai and Isaiah. You see a captain of the host of the Lord there in the book of Joshua. I think it's chapter 5, verse 14. Christ appears and Joshua comes out and says, are you uh, with us or with our enemies? And he says, no, <laughs> you got the wrong picture. It's not whose side I'm on, it's whose side you're on, because I am, I am captain of the Lord's host. Of course, that was pre-incarnate Christ. And Joshua falls down and calls him Lord, Adonai, Master. And of course, he's told, take your shoes off, just like Moses was told at the commencement of his ministry, the place you're standing on is holy ground. Not because there's something special about this ground, but because God is there. And then... Uh, in the book of Isaiah, how many of you heard that word Isaiah 6 just butchered this week in a presidential press conference? I'm not trying to be unkind, but we're, in fact, we were talking about it on the way to church today. And uh, it's funny how the scriptures are thrown around by politicians. And, and, and in sincerity, I think our president shared it to uh, console families in, in, after the bombing that happened in Kabul. But he said for something along these lines, for generations our military men and women have been answering the call from Isaiah 6, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And they have stood up and said, here am I, send me. Now that has nothing to do with military service, does it? Not even close. Uh, but when Isaiah answers that call, it's Adonai. Here am I, send me, your master. So those words Elohim and Jehovah, um, from those we get a further revelation about the one true God by combining these with some other designation. And by the way, Elohim shortened to E-L, singular form. Um, any, anytime you see an Old Testament name with an E-L in it, it has God in the name. Daniel, God is my judge. Ezekiel, God is strong. Elijah, that's actually El and Jah. Elohim and Jehovah. The Lord is my God. 
All right, now what are God's compound names? Let's just look at some of them. Uh, Genesis 14, uh, beginning in verse 17. <clears throat> so just the backdrop, Abraham goes out in the battle of four kings against five, uh, recovers his wayward nephew and those that have been with him. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer and of the kings that went with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. All right, who was Melchizedek as a side trail? He's a shadowy figure. Some think it's an appearance of Christ. Most would probably say it's a type of Christ. I think I would be in that category. But he's an interesting guy that sort of shows up out of nowhere. And uh, then, of course, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament picks it up and says more about him. But he's at least teaching valuable things about Christ. So Melchizedek shows up. His name means king of righteousness. He was the king of Salem, which means peace, which is later Jerusalem. And he's a priest. A lot of times in the Old Testament, when you saw a priest that wasn't a Jew, was it usually a good thing? Not usually. Uh, but here's Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God. A real one, by the way. He combined the offices of priest and king, king of Jerusalem before David, priest of God before the tribe of Levi even existed. He brings bread and the fruit of the vine like Christ did. And Abraham the lesser was blessed, paid tithes in him. Again, that's, uh, that's brought up in the New Testament. But notice verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. He was the priest of El Elyon, the Most High. And by the way, just a side note, again, outside of Abraham the Hebrew, in that age, there was still a remnant who worshiped the real God. I find that very encouraging. Now remember the words of Lucifer when he fell, Isaiah 14 and following? He said, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like El Elyon. I will be like the Most High, he said. And then you see Abraham's statement here in verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, or El Elyon, the possessor of heaven and earth. And of course, <clears throat> he wouldn't take anything from these people. Uh, worldly wisdom would have been, hey, I put my neck out there, pay me back. Abraham says, nope, I'm not going to do that. And so he uses that name, basically, I'm going to trust in the Most High. It kind of reminds me of Matthew 6.33, right? Which obviously didn't exist at that time. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. A mankind's constant inclination, what is it? Fix all my practical affairs, get all the money I need, and then I'll worry about... <laughs> Uh, service to the Lord. And Abraham's saying, nope, 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 nope. I'm going to trust in El Elyon, the Most High. All right, next, flip ahead just to Genesis, probably in the same, just across the page. Genesis 17.1. 7, next compound name is El, El Shaddai. 
Genesis 17, 1, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me, and be thou perfect. So Abraham's 99 years old. He was promised a son 24 years earlier. That's a long time uh, for a man that age, especially waiting for something like that. He had wrongfully adopted the customs of the surrounding culture and fathered a child via a concubine, surrogate child. <clears throat> now Ishmael is 13 years old, and Abraham is still waiting, or Abram at this point, he's still waiting for the promised child. Now take out the chapter break, back up one verse, mentally take out the chapter break, and Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. And then immediately you go to the next verse. And when Abram was 99 year, 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. So side note, sometimes, I've mentioned this before, sometimes you get the idea that Abram and later Abraham had face-to-face -face conversations with God all the time. And that was not the case. If you trace the timeline, look at that. Uh, from verse 16, the end of chapter 16 to the beginning of 17, 13 years go by. 13 years. And no wonder Peter said it's far better to have a Bible in your lap than to be looking for voices and signs and things like that. But the next word to Abram from the Lord is that I am El Shaddai, the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. <clears throat> El Shaddai means God Almighty. A Shaddai is probably from a related word that means mountain. So the picture of El Shaddai is God is this overpowering mighty one standing alone on top of the mountain, or maybe he is the mountain. There's no rival He's high and lifted up. All challengers are a pathetic joke. And it's interesting that name El Shaddai is often used in connection with the chastening of God's people. It was like they had a tremendous sense of him being the almighty one. Uh, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, remember Naomi comes back. They're saying, is that Naomi? She says, call me not Naomi, call me Mara for Shaddai. The Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. In the book of Job, Shaddai, the Almighty, is used 31 different times. So El Shaddai. Uh, next, Genesis 21. You can pick up in verse 33. Is El Olam. Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, El Olam. So Isaac's been born finally. Abraham makes an oath with Abimelech in Beersheba. Beersheba means the well of the oath. And he called there on the name of El Olam, the everlasting God. Well, what's the idea of everlasting? You guys remember the goofy Energizer Bunny advertisements? I don't know if they still have those. They keep going and going and going. Well, they don't go that long. <laughs> They're in the dump. 
the idea of El Olam, the everlasting God, is that he does not wear out. There's no aging, there's no diminishing, there's no gray hairs. I think we have to remind ourselves, I know we know this, but some of the throne scenes in Scripture, take Daniel 7, or the description of Christ in Revelation 1, and what colors the hairs of his head? White like wool. Now, being the ancient of days, that does depict being around a very long time. It depicts purity, but it doesn't depict aging. There, there are, it, it's so, so, so easy to think wrong thoughts about God. There are people that think of God as this very old man. Maybe he's got a cane by now. And of course, with age comes a weakening of passions. Uh, maybe forgetting certain things. Uh, the, none of that applies to God. There's no aging. There's no diminishing. There's one of the major heresies today. There's all kinds of them to name. Um, I think it's called process theology. That God is developing, growing along with the world. So the God of uh, 2021 has learned a lot since the God of 1800. And then especially since Old Testament times, she was meaner back then and he's grown to be nice. Isn't that pathetic? So the idea of the everlasting God is doesn't wear out, no change. Abraham was well aware that he himself was wearing away by this point. In fact, this is the word used in the well-known Isaiah 40, 28. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that El Olam, the everlasting God... The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. The everlasting God, El Olam. All right, flip ahead to Genesis 22. This is probably the most well-known. And again, we know, most of us know the backstory on this. <clears throat> Isaac's a young man. Um, and there's... There's a lot that goes into that discussion why I say that, but I'm convinced Isaac wasn't uh, Timothy's age. He wasn't two. He was a young man by this point when he went up that mountain. And uh, he'd been on the heart of Abraham nearly 50 years by now. And apparently, to some degree, Abraham's love for that boy was bordering the perilous because he was blending the relationship with that child with his view of God himself, at least to some degree. And so the Lord sends him to Mount Moriah. Can you... I, I, I think it's, it's, it's hard to even... It's hard to fathom it. Because we're so used to the story, but he waits decades, and then this child comes, and he's, he's heading into manhood... And the Lord appears and tells him, go to Moriah and offer him for a sacrifice. What? What, what, what did you just say? I mean, why not just do it out here, right? Why? So the Lord sends him on this semi-lengthy journey to Mount Moriah 
And of course, Isaac asks, he says, well, we got the fire, we got wood. Where's the sacrifice? There's a tough question. In verse 8, Abram tells him, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Of course, there's a play on words that comes across in the English. Um, God will provide himself. It sounds almost like a double meaning that God will provide himself as the lamb, which of course uh, he would do. So Abraham raises the knife. The Lord stops him in verse 11. Behind him is a ram caught by the horns. Obvious picture of Christ. Isaac should have died. There was another sacrifice sent in his place. It was a ram. In other words, it was in full adulthood, full strength. It was caught by the horns. It had its power yielded. And by the way, it was the only place that could be caught in the thicket without damaging the animal. So it would be a spotless sacrifice. And so Abraham offers this ram in his son's place. And he calls the name of the place, verse 14. Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord provides. Do you know that providing you and I with what we need is not just something God does. It's who He is. It's who He is. That's the glorious thing about these being turned into names for God. Uh, God's provisions isn't just a hat He picks up sometimes when He's in a good mood. He doesn't have moods. It is God's nature to provide. Oh, like what? Boy, could we... (laughs) What? What's our greatest need? Obviously, our sins forgiven. What else compares to that? Could Abraham have known that thousands of years later, on that very same mount, that temple would stand and that God Himself would come and preach right at that temple and cleanse it twice. Could he have known that? He couldn't have known that. But obviously he came as the lamb to provide redemption. The Lord provides. All right, Exodus 17, 15. <coughs> Excuse me. Exodus 17, 15. This one is... Jehovah Nisi. Actually, we can back up to verse 8. So they're wandering the wilderness. They have been preserved from thirst again. That's the beginning of chapter 17 up through verse 7. And uh, chronologically, they're between Egypt and Mount Sinai. They're on their way there. And uh, it's before Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea, of course, is where they basically told God no. We won't go in the promised land. So they're preserved from thirst, and now here comes the Amalekites. And Joshua goes out to lead the army with physical weapons. And uh, Moses is going to go pray. And remember, the Lord preserved them while his hands were up in prayer. And when his hands went down, you ever try to hold your hands up for a very long time? I remember an illustration one time in a, in a youth event. 
And uh, I picked someone out of the audience, picked a boy, of course, to take this pitcher of water and hold it out for as long as he can. And they timed him. And then they grabbed a girl from the audience and said, all right, see how long you, and of course she could beat him because she knew how long he did it for. You know, but he's showing the difficulty of it. But verse 14, and the Lord, <clears throat> I'm sorry, Moses' hands were heavy, verse 12, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and her stayed up his hands, the one on the one side, the other on the other side, and his hands were steady till the going down of the sun. Boy, is that full of illustration. I'm so tempted to get off on it, but I'm not going to. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword, and the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. Now, Ancient kings all had a recognizable banner when they went to war. And to be under that banner meant you were following that particular king. So the idea is underneath the Lord's banner is the one place that victory is certain. And why is that? He gives a reason. Verse 16, For he said, Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Moses could with confidence say, The Lord is my banner because he's promised to gain the victory. Now, you and I aren't fighting Amalekites, but what's our warfare? It's not, it's not really people. It can be enemies, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood, ultimately. That's not our major battle. Spiritual enemies, internal and external. And the Lord has sworn to fight on our behalf. He has declared His enmity against the world, the flesh, and the devil. I love Micah 7.8. I don't know how many times I've quoted this to myself. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. So even though he says, I, I've tripped, I'm sitting here, it feels like blackness. Don't rejoice over me, enemy. <laughs> I'm going to get up. I'm going to keep going. The Lord shall be a light unto me even in darkness. It makes me think of Matthew 16, 18, a promise we all know. I say also unto Peter, unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whose battle are we fighting? The Lord is our banner. And by the way, we ought to nail our flag to the mast, and it ought to be obvious, anybody who knows us any length of time, whose banner we're under. You know, the big thing today is this clandestine FBI agent Christians. They're going to go in the bar and be a witness. Yeah, they are. <laughs> a witness of a pathetic pseudo-Christianity. God wants us to be clear where we stand and who we follow. <clears throat> All right, turn to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. By the way, let me just say as a side note, there's a few more we're not covering. I'll just mention them quickly. Um, Jehovah Elohim Israel, the Lord God of Israel. Israel begins in Exodus 5. 
the Lord God of Israel. It's often used by the prophets. I think it's very similar to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that phraseology. And it calls attention to the special relation that God had with the Jews and still does as His covenant people. Or there's Kadash Israel, the Holy One of Israel. A reminder that He is holy, holy, holy. He is pure, distinct, and to be feared. In fact, this appears in Isaiah 1.4. Now listen to the contrast. He's talking to the Jews. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. A seed of evildoers. Children that are corruptors. So he calls them sinful, weighed down with iniquity, evildoers and corruptors. And he says, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel, Kadash Israel, unto anger. They are gone away backwards. All right, but back to the other compound names. Judges 6.24 and following, we see Jehovah Shalom. Now again, what's the, the theme of the book of Judges? Please don't try to take church doctrine out of Judges. Is... is let me say this, is Judges applicable? You better believe it. Uh, we've covered this extensively in Bible interpretation. What you don't do is flip through the book of Judges and take their exact example, drag it across the New Testament church and say this is how we're supposed to behave. Boy, will you end up in the cornfield doing that. But, but it happens today. I've heard people defend all sorts of things from books like Ecclesiastes and Judges. And you, you have to... You have to remember the theme of the book. Again, Judges is the folly of forsaking God. There's no king. Every man did that which was, what's the next word? Right in his own eyes. They didn't think they were wrong. They thought they were right. But they were, they were utterly clueless as to what that meant. So we have an entire book of Scripture dedicated to show the idiocy of trying to find happiness without God. That's Ecclesiastes. And then we have an entire book of the Scriptures, Judges, that shows the idiocy of rejecting God on a national level and then expecting peace and sanity. And that, uh, that doesn't happen. Now notice the play on words in Judges 6. If you back up to... Uh, I find this fascinating terminology. Chapter 6, verse 2. The hand of the Midianites prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. Now look at verse 3. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up. Isn't that interesting how that comes across? Now it's saying, obviously, when they plowed their field, here comes the, when, they, when they planted their fields, here comes the Midianites. But it, how that comes across the play on words, they sowed their evil behavior, and what grew out of the field was oppressors and uh, I mean isn't that true still I mean you you the law of sowing and reaping is an inflexible law it is what it is to believer and unbeliever alike it's it's the one of the laws of the universe that God's put in order <clears throat> so you have this young man Gideon he's threshing wheat by the wine press he's hiding from the Midianites and maybe he's thinking what in the world's happening what about God's promises and the angel of the Lord appears in verse 11 there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash, the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. 
Uh, I, don't, I don't think he felt like a mighty man of valor just then. It kind of reminds me of when the Lord looked at Simon Peter and told him, you're going to be called Peter. I'm going to make you to have character like a rock. And here he's telling Gideon what he's going to do with them. You're a mighty man of valor. By the way, what makes a mighty man of valor? Not physical stamina and strength. It's God's enabling. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. The Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? So he's asking the Lord, where, 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 he's asking the angel of the Lord, where's, where's God? Where's he been? And the Lord says, well, I'm going to use you to deliver people. <clears throat> Verse 21, he offers this offering. The angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes. There rose up fire of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Of course, the angel of the Lord every time in the Old Testament is Christ appearing in pre-incarnate form. And uh, Gideon struck with panic. <laughs> he thinks, I'm, I'm going to die. And in verse 23, And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet an Ophrah of the Abiezrites. So he calls it, the Lord is peace. Once again, it's God's nature to want to give you and I peace. That doesn't mean he overlooks sin. No, he justly deals with it. Of course, at the cross, justice was served, and you and I have to confess our sin, but... How can we know we have peace? Because God declared it. Romans 5. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. I'm not going to get off on a side trail. We've talked about it many times. But there's peace with God and the peace of God. Peace with God is a settled fact of God's disposition towards you because of Christ. And it never, ever, ever changes. Peace, the peace of God, is your sense of that. I mean, if you're a believer, it's so hard for us to grasp this, but the Scriptures declare it in many, many different ways. Your position in Christ and your position of peace with God can't ever change. It cannot change. We have peace with God. We have as a present eternal possession... Now, we may not have a sense of it. And, of course, uh, when sin is in the life unconfessed, that causes sometimes disastrous agony that needs to be dealt with. But that, doesn't affect, that affects our fellowship with God, but it doesn't affect our sonship. It never affects our, our position in Him. How about living in a world filled with insanity? Anybody call the world sane today? And then you look around... The angels must just shake their head. You, you look at the United States and the rejection of God for decades. And then you look at what's happening 
financially, politically. What, what just happened in Afghanistan and, and all of that? You look at a pandemic killing people and causing mass panic. You look at twin hurricanes on both sides of Mexico, coming one in the Pacific and one at the Atlantic. One's supposed to hit your homeland today, probably is right now. And mankind says, you know, we need to reduce our carbon footprint. That's our problem. It's just, it's, it's, it's unreal. It really is unbelievable. I mean, hardly a whiff about the judgment of God and about God's hand in all this. It amazes me. <clears throat> what does the Lord say? You remember Christ, who is the angel of the Lord from the Old Testament. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world, he, said, he doesn't say you, you might. <laughs> In the world, ye shall have tribulation. The Lord guarantees you tribulation on this earth. Guarantees it. Of what kind? You name it. I mean, they're going to take many, many different forms. Ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He's already won the battle. I mean, think... Does it make immediate sense to us to fight a battle that's already been won? It's hard for our minds to wrap around that. That a timeless God has already won it, yet we live here in time and must face certain battles and fight them. And it takes effort and strain to fight, but he's already won it. All right, 1 Samuel 3. Flip ahead to that one, 1 Samuel 3. Uh, this one's Jehovah Sabaoth. Excuse me. You know, Holly, I dug out some of the stash of cough drops you gave me. I still, I do, I have them. I store them, I store them up. <clears throat> All right, Jehovah say, Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. 1 Samuel 1, 3. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, Jehovah Sabaoth. And this is the first place of many, uh, just before the birth of Samuel, that that title is used in the Old Testament. Now, hosts, what is hosts talking about? Armies. But it's talking about the angels of heaven that are ready to instantly obey the Lord's command. I mean, think for a minute, if mankind could see the invisible realm around us that's just as real as all this, I've often thought sitting in church service, if we could see the spiritual battle taking place in this area, it would freak us out, for lack of a better term. I really think it would. <clears throat> He's the Lord of hosts. I mean, think of, I remember being in an air show, I love air shows. I was one in Alaska years ago, and the F-22s come roaring over, and the guy in the loudspeaker says, you hear that sound? That's the sound of freedom. It kind of gave you goosebumps. It made me glad to live in this country. But then you think, what is that compared to the angelic armies? Remember the Lord, when his disciples wanted to defend him, he said, thinkest that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? What does 72,000 angels look like? 
think when one of them makes men pass out, one, one of them, he, the men, they don't even swing a sword. The Roman soldiers just, down they went, on their face. What does 72,000 look like? And that's not even the beginning of the numbers. So the idea of the Lord of hosts is he's a captain of this massive angelic heavenly army that truly is without number. It's used 245 times in the Old Testament, often used by the prophets during times of national distress. I, yeah, I would think it would. To remember who's really in charge. Uh, and it's used in promises of future judgment and restoring the Jewish nation. In fact, uh, I'll just read it to you. Zechariah 13.7, it's a prophecy in the future about the Jews and a prophecy of Christ. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones, as though all of heaven turned against him on that cross, which is basically what happened. All right, Exodus 31.13. Go back a little bit, Exodus 31. I know we're covering these kind of quickly, but I think we can finish. Exodus 31. Now, I'll readily say that the pronunciation of this one, I don't know that anybody's certain about. Uh, something in the neighborhood of Jehovah Makadashim. You can picture a Makadashim, you know, as a Hebrew saying it. All right, 31.13, Exodus. Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily, my Sabbaths ye shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. I am Je Jehovah Makadashim. So the instructions given for the design and building of the tabernacle in the wilderness, and you have to ask the question reading through that, why all the detail? Why the exact picture? Why exact obedience required? Have you ever read through what they were required to do? Even in the tabernacle, which was... Think of the tabernacle for a minute. How long were they really supposed to use that for? Were they originally supposed to pack that around for 40 years? That was after they disobeyed. <laughs> uh, well... Israel was dedicated to the glory of God for all the world to see. And by the way, Sabbaths, plural, there's more than one Sabbath, by the way. Saturday was one of them, but the, several of their days and weeks and different things were referred to as Sabbaths. And they're given as a sign between God and Israel. Do we keep the Sabbath today? Is today the Sabbath? No. Uh, Sabbath is part of a law system. It's totally, totally different. I remember the Sabbath, they stayed home. They didn't go attend worship services. Okay, Sunday is not the Sabbath. Totally different. It was a sign between God and the Jews so that they would know that he was Jehovah Makadashim, the Lord that sanctifies them, or the Lord thy sanctifier. So he sets apart certain ones for his glory. It's his nature to sanctify, to set apart. He does it with places, objects in the Old Testament, especially people. And again, we know that we see the connection already. If, if you're a Christian, he's set you apart and you've entered into his rest. In fact, Hebrews 4 mentions the Sabbath as a picture of Christ. Resting from a labor to save myself. It is, 
You know one of the most common things you see dealing with the souls of men? You know what it is? Almost without exception. The first thing you see, even, even if somebody begins to be under true conviction, one of the first things you see is an attempt to clean up self in order to make themselves acceptable to God. That's, that's just that's human nature. And so here's somebody, let's say they're an alcoholic. And they're, they're, they're just under, they hear the gospel and they're under conviction, they haven't come to Christ yet. And their immediate reaction might be, I gotta start coming to church. Now, is it good to come to church? Yes. But if you're coming to church to earn God's merit, no. Or they'll say, you know what, I really gotta get my life cleaned up so I can, so I can, so I can come to God. I gotta get rid of my alcohol. And so there's this constant labor to fix self rather than just take God's gift of salvation, take the new heart He gives, and then let Him deal with. I'm not saying don't repent. Repentance is a turning from uh, fake gospels and a turning from the sinful life, but the power to change comes from God. Right? Well, you and I can't do it. And so the idea of the Sabbath is a picture of our rest in Christ. I'm not trying to save myself anymore. And somebody says, I don't feel very sanctified. <laughs> well, sometimes we don't. I love 1 Corinthians 1.30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Again, there's three realms of sanctification. Past, present, future. Okay, you have been set apart positionally. You are being set apart practically as you grow in Christ. And of course, you will be in glorification. Set apart from sin entirely. All right, Psalm 23.1. We really know this one, although you may not know the Hebrew behind it. Psalm 23.1. And I bet we can all quote it. Psalm 23.1, Jehovah Roi, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That word want there means to lack. I will not lack anything that's actually needed in my Christian life. I mean, how many of you think use that passage as a good luck charm without really thinking about the implications of it? It's used all the time. It's read at uh, fake religious funerals. I mean, the Lord is my shepherd. What, what does that mean? That He's the absolute authority, that I'm ignorant, weak, helpless, and prone to wander, that I submit both to a staff of guidance and rod of correction, and I reject every other voice that would lead me to stray. And what's really astounding about that Lord is my shepherd passage is you think the Old Testament shepherds, David certainly understood this. They were willing to lay down their life for the sheep. But you wonder if a, a thinking Jew would have ever thought, reading David's psalm there, that certainly the shepherd giving his life for the sheep could never apply to the Lord of glory, right? Until it did. Until the shepherd did come and give his life for the sheep to become a little Passover lamb. You know, it's uh, in Revelation 5, you see that throne scene there. And then here this lamb appears. Remember who's worthy to open? And there's no, no one found worthy. 
Weep not, the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed. And then he looks and he sees a lamb in the midst. That word lamb there is the most diminutive form of that word. It's talking about the tiniest, most helpless, innocent little lamb. <laughs> and he's also the lion. It's just an incredible picture. And no shepherd like our good shepherd. All right, Jehovah, Jeremiah 23. We'll move quickly. We'll be done. Jeremiah 23. Oh, what a set of verses. This is Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. So there's this coming king that's going to come from the loins of David physically. He's going to reign and prosper. He's going to execute judgment. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, which hasn't happened yet. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Uh, by the way, um, this is one of many, 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 many passages that can be rightly used to defend the doctrine of Christ's deity. Obviously, reading the passage, it's talking about Christ. I mean, who's the king that's going to come from David's lineage and is going to rule over the Jews? Obviously, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's actually called Jehovah there. He is called Yahweh. Clearly called that. There's actually an intentional irony in the background of this. It doesn't immediately come across. But this is written during the time of King Zedekiah. And 2 Chronicles 36 tells us something about his reign. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And so his name actually means Jehovah is righteousness. <laughs> Think about that. And it's, he's a complete wicked and unrighteous king. Meanwhile, the Lord says, I'm going to send one called the Lord our righteousness. Another king is coming. He'll be a righteous branch. He'll be called Jehovah. And of course, we need a righteousness that we don't have. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All right, lastly, Ezekiel 48. Ezekiel 48, <clears throat> verse 35. By the way, those that deny literal interpretation have a really hard time with the last nine chapters of Ezekiel uh, because it gives us detailed description of the millennial temple, millennial Jerusalem. I mean, why all the detail of something that's just all allegorical? It doesn't make any sense at all. Okay, it only fits that this is a, this future literal truth. Uh, the name here given, we'll get to in a minute, is Jehovah Shammah. All right, what is it that makes the prospect of the eternal city so glorious for you? And think about it. You, you ever stop and think about heaven? There's friends there. There's a lack of pain. There's gold. There's mansions, light, etc., etc. Those are, those are good things. But I think the more mature we are in Christ, the more it's that God is there. 
God is there. I mean, what's one of the major marks of actually being in Christ? You want God. You want God. That's why so much shallow evangelism. You want to go to heaven when you die? Oh, sure, I'm going to go to heaven. We'll just say this magic prayer. There's no conviction in that. It could be as humanistic as somebody robbing a bank. Sure, I want to go to heaven where I get everything I want. Do you want God? Because true conviction of sin shows you your lack in the sight of God and prepares you to believe in Christ. So Ezekiel is carried away captive to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar's army. Witness horrific. I mean, think about it. He's carried away captive. His people are slaughtered. Jerusalem is leveled. The temple is wiped out. And as a captivity prophet, he's given prophecies far into the future, including the city of Jerusalem during the millennium, which is an incredible place. But what's the real glory of it at the end of the book? It was around about 18,000 measures, and the name of the city from that day shall be Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. What a name. And again, making application to us. Is it... Does that only apply to the millennial Jerusalem or heaven? I mean, can you say in your own life that He is Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there? It's true. The Lord Jesus went away and He said, it is expedient for you. It's good for you that I'm going away. That, 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 that statement astounds me. I'm going to send you another comforter, another of the same kind. He shall be in you. And Christ is saying, the indwelling Spirit in you is better for you than Christ being bodily present right now. That's amazing. And you and I have the Spirit of God living within. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Lord, of course, says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, or the end of the age is what that means. I am the Lord is there. In our distress, our heartache, our transitions, whatever happens, <laughs> the Lord is there. And of course, when we go home to be with Him, it's just God being God. The Lord is there. He's still there. All right, any questions or comments? Additions or subtractions? All right, let's pray. Father, thank You for these names. And, and truly, Lord, we... Uh, we will be learning about these forever. And Lord, surely, as an infinite God, you have an infinite amount of names that you could apply to yourself. We thank you that of all the glories of heaven, the greatest is that you are there. But Lord, thank you that you indwell us now here. You haven't left us as spiritual orphans. In Jesus' name, amen.